Before we get started, as always, I want to plug Brian's ministry more than he does. <clears throat> you know, I was thinking about him this week and just, I mean, I've known Brian forever. Um, but it's such an amazing blessing to have someone like him right here where we're at that we get to enjoy his teaching week in and week out and he's got people all over the nation and sometimes the world calling him to do the same thing um, I know they put in he and Tara put in a lot of time into this and making this a thing for everybody I know they say they love it but it's still a lot of work and I'm just so grateful for them so before we go uh, I just want to pray to open up <clears throat> and to specifically lift them up in prayer as they are out and about across the nation at the moment. So if you'd bow your heads with me. Lord, um, so grateful for everyone here tonight. We're so grateful for your word, your revelation of who you are to mankind, to your children, to your flock. Lord, we thank you for being our good shepherd. We thank you for calling us home. And Lord, we thank you for specifically the youngs. God, we just want to lift them up in prayer as they are visiting family and as Brian is building the kingdom, your kingdom, and spreading the good news in this dark and lost world. Lord, watch over them, bless them, protect them, be with them, and Bless them beyond abundance, God, for all that they do for so many. God, I need your help tonight. I just pray that you would speak through me, that it would be your words and not my own, and that they would glorify you. We ask all these in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> okay, I am so excited to give this message tonight. Um, it, I was just telling Nathan, he asked how it went this week, and I said, well... It went good, but I feel like it's just going to be a bit of a fire hose on all of you. Um, so I'm going to try and do my best to relay this information as, as clearly and concisely as I can. So with that said, let's get into it. I'd like to start with a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says, We tend to deal in bits and pieces with worldview and ideology instead of seeing how it all goes together. I wasn't overly familiar with Francis Schaeffer. Does, does anybody here know who he is? A few people? Okay. From what I can tell, he's big time Team Jesus. Um, American evangelical theologian, philosopher, uh, and a pastor. And I came across this quote, and I just felt that it was necessary to share tonight regarding the subject matter that I'm going to be covering see things in bits and pieces. And I would substitute this quote for our topic tonight with, with scripture and theology and doctrines. And so often, everybody, anytime we read scripture, we have lenses through which we interpret the word. Preferred lenses, lenses we've inherited, lenses we don't even know are there sometimes. But regardless, they're there. And anytime we look at Scripture through those lenses, certain things are going to be illuminated, while at the same time, other things, things just as important, are inevitably going to be dimmed. 
so many different lenses out there. And I do say they're a preference because that's the reality of it. I mean, look around. Why are there so many denominations? Why are there so many theological differences? So many eschatological opinions or soteriological viewpoints? Why all the disagreements? Well, it's because of how we interpret and the lens that we interpret Scripture through. Suppose uh, you could make the argument that, well, no, it's matters of conviction. It's not preference. Perhaps I, I could flip it and say, well, don't we all prefer to side with our convictions? Maybe that's neither here nor there. So as we continue, I just want you to keep this in mind. What lenses, I'll speak for myself, there's lenses that I've inherited throughout the years that I've had to, to recognize and remove in my understanding of Scripture and this story that God is telling. Maybe you've done the same. Maybe you haven't. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not even aware that you have lenses on. Another thing I want you to keep in mind, it's a graph that I have found remarkably helpful for myself and uh, remaining humble in the knowledge that I have. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, it's pretty simple to understand. On the vertical, we have confidence in what we know. On the horizontal, we have what we know. So often, we begin to learn about something, and it's like, oh, yeah, I got it. I got it all figured out. And then all too quickly, upon learning more, we realize, oh, man, I know nothing. I think this is pride, arrogance. Excitement is good. But this fall right here, that's humility. And at the bottom there is where we should all aim to begin any time we learn something. Especially within Scripture. As each year that goes by, the more and more I realize I have thought I've been here on a lot of subjects. Like, oh yeah, I got a firm grasp on this. It's pretty simple. And very quickly realize, oh man, I have... So much to learn. I think experts in any field, any field, mathematics, science, history, whatever, the Bible, where do you think the experts who know the most there is to know, where would they put themselves on this graph? I don't think they would put themselves here, and I certainly don't think they would put themselves here. I bet they're somewhere on this slope of learning. So as we hopefully learn something new tonight, let's keep that in mind. Where are you on this graph for anything? So, with the lenses in mind, and that graph, we'll go back to the lenses. Back to the disagreements that we have. We say, well, you're wrong because my interpretation, my, my, my doctrine, uh, my understanding of theology says this. It, well, no, you're wrong because uh, it count, it, it's, it's counter to what I believe here and there. And that's good to have those discussions. It's right. But what if instead of arguing our lenses, we put them aside and just let Scripture speak for itself? What if we approach those difficult passages with, Brian says it all the time, the sound wisdom of let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the story tell itself. Easier said than done, all right? <laughs> Yes, the Bible is an ancient book 
or an ancient library of books inspired from God, the creator of the universe, full of fountains of wisdom and knowledge, and guidance and, and light and insight that on this side of eternity, no one person will ever be able to reach the depths of comprehension. And yet, it is beautifully simple. And we should not overcomplicate it. So my message tonight pertains to that beautiful simplicity of a topic that I think many in the church have missed. Or have just not covered altogether. I'll be honest, the first time I heard this was, I'll get into it, three years ago. Three years ago was the first time I, I heard this topic covered. Before we get to the topic, some background. How we got to this point. It was Tabernacles of 2021. There we were. We were all gathered around the campfire, as one does in the evenings of Sukkot. <laughs> as we were gathered, we were, uh, I don't remember who was all there, but we were, of course, talking about things of the Lord, as one did, does gather around the campfire in the evenings of Sukkot, at least during a respite from tinfoil hat conspiracy conversations. Uh, exactly what conversation we were having, I, I don't entirely recall, but I know it had something to do with the relationship between God and Israel. And as the conversation progressed, uh, it was Mrs. Danielle Fellows from the top rope out of nowhere bringing in a statement that it really sent me down this path of learning of something that I thought I understood but realized that I really didn't. The graph, remember the graph? So what was it that Danielle said? She said, well, God did divorce Israel. And this was a moment for me. It's moments, you know, where you have a, a complete paradigm shift, where puzzle pieces begin to fall into place, where dots you didn't even really know were there begin to connect, when you begin to see things the way they're meant to be seen, when lenses were taken off. This was that moment for me. Internally, I'm trying to piece it all together, trying to figure it out. Um, and externally, I'm almost certain that my reaction was like that. <laughs> what? Excuse me? I was flabbergasted. In the truest sense of the term, I was humiliated. Brought to a humble state of what I thought I knew. Where had this been my whole life? God got a divorce? Had to search it out for my own. Had to find it. So as I was reading through the Bible, immediately I was led to Jeremiah 3. I won't read it all for time's sake, but it says there in the middle, verse 8. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a certificate of divorce. One word came to mind when I read this. Implications. Implications. Conclusions that can be drawn from something, although it's not explicitly stated. Maybe some of you are trying to figure out those conclusions right now on your own. There are implications with such a statement that I had never heard before. How did I... I've humiliated, read the Bible multiple times. How, you know those moments where it's, you miss something so obvious? 
I, I feel in good company because Brian says it still happens to him. So, <laughs> well, all right. So, regardless of missing it or not, it's right there. God got a divorce. We cannot ignore it. So that brings us to our topic. God's divorce and how it helps us better understand the old and new covenant. I can't explain to you guys how much of a blessing this topic has been to me. Again, seeing things in bits and pieces versus seeing it as a whole. And I just want to reassure you that as we go through this, this is not in any way changing the heart of the gospel, changing Christ's redemptive work on the cross by the blood of his covenant for, for anyone who believes. That it doesn't change one bit. But it does, in a sense, reveal something that's been there all along. That maybe you've noticed it, but I didn't. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Thankfully, Brian has just done six weeks of what I'm about to do a review on. So I'm going to send you back to what he's done to help you get a better grasp of this. But it's his... his I think he's not even done yet. He's got more, but Jewish history. He's done six weeks so far of Jewish history, so we should be uh, quite saturated in it. So I'm just going to reestablish some facts. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God got married. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he married Israel. We know Israel really messed up, and God split them into two. Israel and Judah. We know both Israel and Judah broke God's covenant. And from what we just read, we know that God divorced Israel, but not Judah. Fast forward, we see Jesus come on the scene. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus has a bride. We know that Jesus is God. And we know that we are awaiting the final marriage supper of the Lamb. If you understand the word of God and God's law, you see this and you know there's dissonance. Something doesn't fit. And it begs the question, if Jesus is God, how can God get remarried if he got a divorce? Roland, God is a God of order. I drill that into our kids all the time. God is a God of order, so we should have order too. God is a God of order. He's legally bound to his law. And he does not change. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3, for I, Yahweh, do not change Daniel Joseph he says it all the time God has a modus operandi I didn't know what that meant <laughs> so it means a set way of doing things if God got divorced how can he get remarried and not break his own law so let's dig in 
in order to get to this point of, of understanding this, we have to understand covenants. I need to give credit where credit is due. Um, much of this teaching I, I got from a guy in Denver, Colorado called Douglas Hamp. And I'm going to encourage, like, please ask me for his, his video message. I will, I will text it to you. Maybe I'll just put it on the Facebook group because everybody needs to see it. It is brilliant. And he's far more brilliant than me. Um, and, and I think you'd benefit so much more from, from watching his. But regardless, he is what I am, in, in essence, refeeding you guys. Um, and he has an article where he, he covers this. And in it, it it's, the, it's the opening statement. He says, as Christians, we live and breathe the New Testament. There are some Christians who claim to be New Testament Christians, only referring to teaching exclusively from the corpus of the New Testament books. But what is the New Testament? That is, what is the New Contract? Not the Gospels and the Epistles. To understand what the New Testament, the New Contract is, we must first understand what, it's supposed to be what, the Old Covenant the Old Testament, what that was. So, not to do a teaching on covenants. We know what covenants are. We know covenants are binding agreements between two parties. Uh, we know that they have defined obligations and commitments and, and, and penalties. We see them everywhere from person to person, kingdom to kingdom, nation to nation. Uh, and we also see them with God and man. Here's a list of the potential eight covenants. I say potential because there is debate amongst this. Again, what lens do you have on? I think it's too many, but that's neither here nor there. We're not, we're not here to discuss what is and is not a covenant that God makes with man. Um, we're here to discuss primarily four. One made with Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant through Christ. And primarily two the Mosaic, and the New Covenant. When you open your Bible, what do you turn to? The Old Testament. Or the Old Covenant. And then after Malachi, you are in the New. Again, there's also discussion. Well, is testament the right word? It's from the Greek word diatheke. And apparently, anytime it's used in Scripture, in this context, it is talking about a covenant. So, Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. Same thing. And even in those openings of each section of God's library, it's telling a story. That there was an old covenant, an old contract, an old arrangement, and now there is a new one. And there is much debate about the relationship between these two covenants. So I'm going to try, I know, I'm going to try and help us take off our preferred or inherited lenses and just let the story tell itself. So what is the old covenant? Some would say, ah, do's and don'ts. Or, ah, blessings and curses. Perhaps some would say, who cares? It has nothing to do with me. 
right? Unhitched? Hmm. To not give too much time into that rabbit trail, the Old Covenant simply is God's marriage to Israel. Again, I said there's no debate about that. God, is, God married Israel. The, 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 the discussion can be, well, was, did, did he betroth himself to Israel through his covenant to Abraham, or was it uh, through Moses on Mount Sinai? That's not the discussion for this moment. Um, the point is God married Israel, and I think it is without shadow of a doubt that at Sinai was the marriage ceremony. A great resource for that would be Brian's teaching. It's titled Revelation 19 Wedding. Um, so it would have been a couple months ago that we went over it, but he, he goes over just the, the historical Jewish, Jewish marriage and what those looked like and, and relating it to the marriage supper of the Lamb we see in Revelation 19. Um, when you listen to that, keep in mind the Exodus. Keep in mind the escape from the Egyptians and the crossing of the sea and the arrival at Sinai. That's a marriage ceremony. I can't be convinced any other way. So, discussions aside, fact is, God married Israel. Mazel tov! This is good! They're married! This is a good thing. And we can prove it in Scripture with, unfortunately, some, some tragic uh, uh, references. Jeremiah 3.8 says, I, I sent her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. You can't get divorced unless you're married. And Jeremiah 31, uh, talking about the new covenant that he was going to, to make with Israel and Judah, toward the end it says, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them. So yes, God was married. And when you're married, what do you do? You exchange vows. Every marriage covenant has an exchanging of vows, an expression of love from one party to another, committing themselves to each other for life. We see this. Exodus 19, God has just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, and brought them to himself, to marry himself to them. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So then now, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. I'm going to continue on for time's sake. Deuteronomy 7 further details this. It says, For you are a holy people to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved them. God chose them because he is faithful. Faithful to the oath which he swore to their fathers. So chapters 20 through 23, we see God give, give all his vows, all these requirements, all these commitments, and, and 
He calls Moses up in 24. And he goes up and writes them down and reads them to the people. It says, then he took the book of the covenant. That's 20 through 23. And read it. And in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut for you in accordance with all these words. They agreed. And the blood was shed, and it sealed and ratified the covenants. Just as all covenants are sealed with blood. Deuteronomy 10. In the context of God and his marriage to Israel, and this being a good thing, he wraps it up so perfectly in this, this section here. It says, so now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask? Uh, the ESV says require. I like require better. Real quick, every, every uh, passage I'm referencing is from the Legacy Standard Bible. Um, I don't typically use that, but I wanted to this time. Um, but um, anyway, what does Yahweh ask? What does he require from you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I am commanding for you today for your good. Not do's and don'ts. It's his righteousness revealed to us. And his commandments and his statutes are good. Perfect, in fact. And there's so much more to be said on this, but we have to keep progressing. I'm just trying to set the stage. God got married. They had their vows. Done deal. Mazel tov. Right? Well, for a time. Eventually, we know that it led to divorce. Immediately, upon the mountain, they were unfaithful. Immediately. And again, Brian has, has covered this in great detail. Specifically, um, message two of this series is, is so good for what I'm going over tonight. But anyway... Time passes, Israel splits, two kingdoms, Judah, Israel, south, north, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Jews, Gentiles. Drops in a bucket, scattered into the nations. We also see this imagery throughout of two daughters of one mother. Ezekiel 23, won't read all of it for time's sake, but says, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt. And their names were Ohola, the elder, and Aholiba, her sister. They became mine. They bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Samaria is Ohola, and Jerusalem is Oholiba. Ohola played the harlot while she was mine. Continues on. She did not forsake her harlot trees from the time in Egypt. Therefore, I gave her into the hand of her lovers. It's a brutal chapter. But be a good Berean. Go look it out. Search this out for your own. 
You have this imagery. This divorce, the north, south, Judah, Israel, Ohola, Oholiba. And it was 700 years before God divorced Israel. That's a long time. That's a long time. And we should remember that this hurt God. Second Kings 17 says, Yahweh was very angry with Israel. Ezekiel 6, it says, How I have been broken over their adulterous hearts. And so they got divorced. Israel was sent away. Again, brings us back to the question, how can God get remarried if he got a divorce? This brings us to that divine dilemma. God is a God of order. Modus operandi. Set literally in stone on Sinai. Set way of doing things. So, we have to go to the law. What does the law say regarding divorce? We are led to Deuteronomy 24. I will read this. It says, If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she goes out of his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if that latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if that latter husband dies who took her, in the context of what we're talking about, Israel, in this case, to be his wife, then her former husband, Yahweh, in this case, who sent her away, divorced her, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh. How do we resolve this? Some would say, oh, well, God can do whatever he wants. No. Order. He will not break his law. He will not violate his commands. And yet we see him throughout Scripture passionately call for wayward Israel, his sent away bride, to repent and return. In Jeremiah 3, kind of skip down a little bit, it says, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. It's something to keep in the back of your mind. Go out and call these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares Yahweh. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am one of loving kindness, declares Yahweh. I will not be angry forever. Goes on. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against Yahweh your God. Goes on. Return, O faithless sons, declares Yahweh, for I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. 
It's calling them back. Hosea 2 says, And I will betroth you to me forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know Yahweh. Why would God call Israel back to himself if according to his own word, his law, taking her back would be an abomination set by his own standard? One option. We see this in Romans 7. Paul writing says, Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law. I'm going to stop. This is very important. Paul, being the utmost student of the law, says, I am speaking to you who understand what I'm about to say, who understand the law of God. Do we understand the law of God? Well, forgive me if I don't think so. According to a study done by the Cultural Research Center, in conjunction with Dr. George Barna, the study, what does it mean when people say they are Christian? According to that study, synopsis, only 9% of self-identified Christians hold to a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is absolutely elementary in its understanding. This is not, I don't understand the Bible. This is not, well, I think, no, this is, I reject what the Bible says to hold to this pre-kindergarten level of understanding. 9%. So forgive me if I don't believe, not you, but the (laughs) proverbial you, if they say they have a firm understanding of the law. Odds are they do not. We're all, I think you guys are good here. I think we, I think we have a, a, you know, again, the graph. I'm still pretty low on that graph. I don't know where you'll put yourself, but. So, keep that in mind. Continuing on. For the law is master over a person as long as he lives. For if the married woman has been bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she, uh, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. The husband has to die. Yahweh had to die. I think we all understand that. But imagine being the prophets of old. Imagine being the forefathers. How is God going to do this? How is he going to resolve this? How is he going to make this right? 
some important notes on this. Again, to those of you who know the law, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Paul is reminding the Jews that when someone dies, that person is free from all the judgments, all the contracts, all the obligations. Those are all dissolved. The law of her husband. This goes back to Deuteronomy 24. Death. Penalty of adultery is death. God divorced Israel. She can't come back unless God dies. So he did. Through Christ. And so as a result, that punishment for sin, for adultery, the death is paid for. That divorce is canceled. This is where people get confused. Oh, the law's done. The law's gone. No, no more law. Not that important. No. It's the condemnation of breaking that covenant that is dissolved. The law that God gave to us on Sinai was his, righteous, or his, his revelation of righteousness to us. His ways. They still stand. They're still perfect. And they are still for our good. The condemnation is gone. The punishment for breaking that covenant is gone. Psalm 19.7 says the law of, the, of Yahweh is perfect. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew 5 verse 8. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Remember that graph. Where are you on that graph? Just because we don't understand it, just because we don't understand God's law and, and the application for it is in our lives today doesn't mean we shouldn't reject it. Submit to it. And do like the Father in Mark 9 did. He said, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. I'm going to continue. Paul in 7 continues into verse 4. So my brothers, you also were made to die to the law of her husband through the body of Christ so that you might be joined married to another to him Jesus who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. He puts the exclamation mark on it. The, the obvious conclusion to those reading it that Jesus, the word made flesh, his death, his blood, allowed Israel to be remarried. The former husband died. She can be married anew. Two, the risen Christ, the new man, different in legality standards, like full stop, Jesus is God. They are not different. But by God's law, by the legal terms set, Jesus is the new man. 
the one who died rose back to life and allowed for the new covenant to be established. Colossians 2 details this more. It says, You being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of degrees, decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The curses of that broken covenant were nailed to the cross. The debt is paid. And so we have a new marriage. Remember the old marriage, the ceremony on Sinai. The blood was shed. The sprinkling of blood on the people to seal the deal. To make it effective, operable, and binding. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. And they, they accepted it and they said, We do. What do we see Jesus say? We had take, when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the blood, Christ's blood established the new covenant, the new marriage too much to say here. There's, there's just too much. So please be, again, be a good Berean. Search these things out for yourself. Look into these beautiful complexities. There's just, there's so much richness here. For time's sake, ultimately, Christ's blood to establish the new covenant dissolved the old and its requirements Dissolve the old marriage for both Israel and Judah. It was offered. Now, I'm just going to go to the next slide. This is, it's from Hebrews 9. Read it. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And though... And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption from breaking the covenant. Colossians 1 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, through the blood of the cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in minds and deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death <clears throat> in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Hallelujah.
Reminds me of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, through his blood that he shed to set in motion that new marriage contract. Imagine reading this. Back then, Israel could now remarry. The former husband is dead. New freedom. But if death, if it was just the death, that would only be part of the story. Death could not be the end. Because if all Christ did was die, then Israel could have remarried whoever. He died to create the marriage covenant. And he rose to create the new husband and the new wife. We understand, <clears throat> hopefully, if I've done a decent job, that the new covenant is a new marriage certificate with God and humanity. We understand that the new husband is resurrected Christ, conquered the grave, king of glory. Who is the new wife exactly? How do we rectify this? We have Israel and we have Judah. We have the Jews and we have the nations. We have Ohola, Oholiba, remember? <clears throat> How do we rectify that? We just covered Christ's death, resurrection, how that dissolved the old contract for Israel. But what about Judah? Remember, God did not divorce Judah. Why? Because he made a covenant with David. And he was faithful to David. Psalm 89 <clears throat> says, I have cut a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne from generation to generation. It goes on later in verses 30 and 34. If my sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they profane my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with striking. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not profane. Hmm. So God is faithful to David. Even when Judah was worse than Israel. Remember, Jeremiah 3. Her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also later on. It says, yet in spite of all this, her, treacheries, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in lying, declares Yahweh. And Yahweh said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So Judah really screwed up too. More so. They were under the same condemnation. 
we see in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is, in fact, the only time in the Old Testament I believe that the new covenant is mentioned. And we see God say, not just a new covenant with the one he divorced, Israel, but with both. We see in Ezekiel 37, remember those two sisters. And then we see this imagery of, of sticks. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick. And they will be one in my hand. Ezekiel 37 is a great chapter to reference. Go read it regarding this topic. Be a good Berean. Don't just take my word for it, please. God uses this imagery of two sticks of Israel and Judah, Ahola, Aholi Ba, the north, the south, the Jew, the Gentile. And he proclaims that he will unite them and they will be one. So yes, Jesus' death annulled Judah's marriage contract with Yahweh. Same contract that was with, he had with Israel. If you're married and your husband dies, you are free to remarry. This allowed them to also take part in the same new marriage contract, the new covenant. Ephesians 2. This one's a bit long, very important. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall, the partition, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. Goes on. And he came and preached the good news of peace to those who were far away, those who were divorced, those who were set off in the wilderness, scattered among the nations, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access 
in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Both houses reunited again. The stain of adultery washed away with the blood of the new covenant. Debt paid, hope restored, dead made alive. Praise God. Do you guys see how this new covenant is a renewed marriage contract to all the nations? Perhaps you're listening to this. Maybe someone's watching this video and they're, they're thinking to themselves, what about me? What about me? You've been talking about Israel. <clears throat> You've been talking about Judah. Some old whole eyes, I don't even know what that is. What does this have to do with me? I'm not a Jew. I'm not from Judah. I'm not a native-born Israelite. Perhaps you're someone who says, well, didn't God replace Israel with the church? Aren't we under a new dispensation of grace? Dispensationalism? No, we're not. Go to Romans 11. Read it. Read how we are grafted in to the rich root, the olive tree that is the covenant with Israel. Reunited Israel. Not some brand new thing that has nothing to do with God's chosen. Oh, those chosen still matter. And we, the nations of the world, the exiles, those who are far off, without hope, we are now in the household of God. Going to throw a lot at you here. This is for the skeptic. This is for the doubter. We're going to go back to Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham. says, you will be a blessing. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. A couple chapters later, God says, look at the stars. Can you number them? No, you cannot. <laughs> so shall your seed be. This provokes Romans 3 and, and Romans 4 for me. It says, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that faith, he is one. Do we then abolish the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Romans 4. Again, read these for yourselves. There's so much there that I just couldn't fit in here. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed. The seed of who? The seed of Abraham. 
not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. What does Brian say all the time? I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew. That's what you call a Jew. I'm a Jew. He's right. He's right. But it gets him in the hot water because I'm writing to those who understand the law. Remember? We don't understand the law. We don't understand the definitions. Definitions matter. Details matter. How Scripture defines terms matters. And according to what Scripture says, if we have faith in God, if we are redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are of the faith of Abraham. We continue. Genesis 48. If you've been going through the Bible in a year, you would have just gone over this recently. Jacob making a promise to Ephraim over Manasseh says, but his father refused and said, this is Jacob, I know my son, I know. He will also, he being Manasseh, he will also become a people. He will also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become the fullness of the nations. That fullness of the nations is exactly what we see in Romans 11. The fullness of the Gentiles. It says, For I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery. Listen, guys. If, you, if we don't understand it, I think we're in pretty common company. Paul says, hey, I get it. This is a mystery. And he's helping us understand. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is coming. The fullness of the nations. The promise made to Ephraim. Younger become great. Love what Isaiah 49 says regarding salvation of the nations. He says, He says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. He says, I will also give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This has to do with everyone. Uh-huh. Okay, what about Sinai? Who was the law given to at Sinai? Details matter? Yes, they do. Details matter. Exodus 12 says, And a foreign multitude also went up with them, along with the flocks and herds and a very large number of livestock. Foreign multitude. Later on it says, And the same law shall apply to the native as to the sojourner who sojourns among you. For me, it reminds me of Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and to everyone else. To everyone else. So yes, this is about you. Ephesians 3. I'm going to skip down a bit for time's sake. He's 
again, talking about this mystery that they, they hadn't known yet, but he says, Now it's revealed to his apostles and prophets in the Spirit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Who are those Gentiles? All the rest. Everyone else. Anyone who would believe. What is the promise found in Christ Jesus? The new covenant marriage made with the united, reunited house of Israel that we now are members of. We are partakers of that promise. The imagery of Christ being a shepherd. Ezekiel 34 says, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I myself will seek my sheep and care for them. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his sheep, which are spread out. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. It's fitting for today, isn't it? I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. Hmm. Imagine walking with Jesus, knowing what Scripture says, knowing those prophecies, longing for that shepherd. And then you hear the Messiah say, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Even Caiaphas, in the next chapter, prophesies. says he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And Christ says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself all men Romans 10 where the scriptures say whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved think they got this then. I think they had a better grasp of it than we do now. I think they understood the significance of that new covenant, that blood shed by the Messiah. That condemnation being removed. The new marriage contract and the new bride, the bride of Christ.
So you hear about dual covenant replacement theology so often. There is no dual covenant. There is no replacement. There is the new covenant and there is grafted theology. We are grafted in. Again, go to Romans 11. It's plain as day. So, in conclusion, yeah, we see God give a covenant to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. We see God make a covenant with Israel where he revealed his righteousness to humanity. We see Israel break that covenant which brought condemnation. We see God divorced Israel and yet remained faithful to Judah because of his redemptive plan that was already set in motion. We see the Messiah come through the line Judah, through the covenant made to David, we see Jesus die and come to life, raised to life to make a new covenant, to establish a new covenant, to dissolve that condemnation of the old. And we see that now we, who is the we, the house of Israel, the reunited house of Israel, which is the Jew and the Gentile. Everyone who believes we are the new bride of Christ. And we know that we are awaiting that final marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Long for that day. Reestablish the cry of Maranatha in your heart if you've lost it. Come, Lord Jesus. God, thank you for saving us, but come back. So what do we do in the meantime? I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 10. My family, my household, we're going to fear Yahweh our God. We're going to do our best to walk in his ways and to love him. We're going to serve Yahweh our God with all our heart and with all our soul. And we're going to do our best to keep his commandments and his statutes, knowing that they are for our good. knowing that we are part of his kingdom and he's got his modus operandi, his way of doing things, and they are good. I'm going to try and recognize any lifestyle of exile that we have adopted. We're going to try and rid our homes of that. We're going to keep shining the good news of Christ to this lost and broken world.
So with that, let's close in prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, our Savior and our Redeemer. God, thank you for shedding your blood, for redeeming us from the curse for allowing the dead to be made new. God, I pray that you would just remind us of your goodness. Remind us of who you say you are, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love you and do what you say. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? We love you, Lord. Amen.